0: Welcome to the Alzheimer's Solution Revolution Show with Ralph Sanchez. Ralph's background includes 25 years as a clinician and functional medicine consultant, and he is the best selling author of The Diabetic Brain and Alzheimer's Disease. Ralph's mission on this show is to bring you the trailblazing information and science that enables you to live younger, longer, and protect yourself and your loved ones from cognitive impairment and dementia as you age. Hello, once again, this is your host, Ralph Sanchez, and welcome to episode number 22. And indeed, it has been much too long between this episode and the last one. I have been busy with new book projects on the topic of the key underlying risk factors for late-onset Alzheimer's disease that are more unique to women. I'll have an announcement on when those books will be available here soon. And frankly, looking forward to doing so. And on that note, I have in store for you another special episode today in which I'll present the evidence and the rationale for the bone-brain axis as it pertains to an increased risk for dementia and late-onset Alzheimer's disease, and why age-related bone loss. May be an indicator of an increased risk for late onset Alzheimer's disease. First, I'll begin by sharing about an insight I came across in my journey as a healthcare practitioner that dates back to the early 2000s. I'll never forget, soon after the 21st century was ushered in, listening to a speaker on the topic of osteopathy. Horosis related risk factors. It was a teleclass long before Zoom and webinars, and the speaker remarked that the chronic and excessive inflammation associated with bone loss in aging women foreshadowed the undercurrents of disease pathways that potentially predicted cardiovascular disease and late-onset Alzheimer's disease risk in women. I was well into the dissection of the linkages between cardiovascular disease and late-onset Alzheimer's disease at the time, which was not a well-studied and reviewed linkage back then. However, connecting the shared risk factors between Osteoporosis and late onset Alzheimer's disease was a bit of a revelation that I came away from in that teleclass. The chronic inflammation connection between osteoporosis and late onset Alzheimer's disease was not a surprise, but it was an aha moment for me too, as I was beginning to dig into the sex differences. Between men and women in the risk for late onset Alzheimer's disease. And instinctively, I knew that there was a lot more there that would soon reveal itself once I had the time to hone in more on that association. Bear in mind that at the time, no one, except for a few enlightened researchers, were examining and expounding on the interrelated biological processes that connected age-related diseases such as osteoporosis and cardiovascular disease to late-onset Alzheimer's disease. So I tucked away that nugget into my back pocket for another day as I was already intensely focused on connecting the system's biology dots between cardiometabolic disease, and late onset Alzheimer's disease, which would eventually become my book, The Diabetic Brain and Alzheimer's Disease. Now, before moving on here, I'll ask that you please flash back to my aha moment that I've just shared with regard to the role of chronic inflammation in the interconnected biological processes that bridges age-related diseases such as osteoporosis, cardiometabolic disease, and late-onset Alzheimer's disease. I am asking that you do so as I'll end this episode with an overview on the role of estrogen In counterbalancing the role of inflammation associated with bone loss in aging women. And another terrific insight I had with regard to the role of estrogen as a critical regulator of inflammation responses in bone health. Fast forward to now, several key studies over the past 15 to 20 years have demonstrated that the human skeleton is an endocrine organ that bidirectionally communicates with our brain and our gut and other organs indeed the human skeleton secretes hormones that regulate phosphate mineral metabolism bone matrix mineral deposition and glucose and energy homeostasis normally one may think of typical endocrine organs such as the pancreas, thyroid, or pituitary gland, which produce and release hormones that regulate a myriad of functions in the body and brain. And again, the same can be said for bone, which secretes the hormones, FGF23, which stands for fibroblast growth factor 23, and osteocalcin. Fibroblast growth factor 23 is a bone-derived hormone that is essential in the regulation of phosphate and vitamin D metabolism, but I will not include much more than that on FGF 23 in our review here today. Instead, the focus of this overview will largely center on the role of osteocalcin in bone Metabolic and brain health. So let's dive right into that osteocalcin overview. To begin with, a seminal study published in 2007 by Dr. Gerard Carzenti has set in motion numerous studies since, which have expanded on these endocrine and metabolic linkages between a form of osteocalcin termed uncarboxylated osteocalcin and other organs. And I will be giving you a much deeper dive into the role of uncarboxylated osteocalcin and another similar form of osteocalcin as we move along here. And since endocrine, hormone proteins are secreted directly into circulation, they are able to exert their physiological effect on many target receptors and their respective tissues. Indeed, bone cells secrete a form of a bone protein and hormone osteocalcin and others, which is normally Associated with the maintenance of bone mass, and it also functions as a key protein and hormone in the crosstalk and regulation of physiological pathways between bone and other organs, including our brain. Now, bear with me as I continue here with the biochemical side of osteocalcin related modifications or What is known as carboxylation that requires vitamin K before getting to the role of osteocalcin in the bone brain axis here? It is a necessary review in order to fully understand what uncarboxylated versus carboxylated osteocalcin represents with regard to its function as a hormone in bone, metabolic, and brain health. First, I'll begin with a brief description on the role of vitamin K in osteocalcin carboxylation and function. And please do bear in mind that osteocalcin is normally carboxylated by vitamin K and then is normally decarboxylated in the bone tissue. It will help you in keeping track here as I continue. Osteocalcin and another key and related protein termed matrix GLA protein require vitamin K as a functional cofactor. And that association is important as it provides insights into the heart brain axis osteocalcin is produced by bone cells termed osteoblasts those are the bone forming cells of bone tissue and osteocalcin is deemed a vitamin k dependent protein more precisely a vitamin k dependent GLA protein, and for many years now, osteocalcin and the modification or carboxylation of osteocalcin by vitamin K has been shown to be an important activation event in forming a bone mineral cartilage complex that is essential for bone strength and quality. And in a related vitamin K effect, particularly with regard to the role of vitamin K2 on calcium metabolism, the modification of a vascular protein termed matrix GLA protein is also widely considered as a vital MGP protein modification. Activation event in the inhibition of arterial calcification. So we have osteocalcin and we have the matrix GLA protein, which I'll describe as MGP moving forward here. And they're both GLA proteins. I must point out what once appeared to me as a fascinating phenomena. A carboxylation or modification of these two GLA proteins, osteocalcin and MGP. And remember, MGP is expressed in the vascular tissue. But the point here is that they have opposing effects on calcium deposition in bone and vascular tissue, respectively. Osteocalcin. And the carboxylation of osteocalcin promotes calcium deposition into the bone, whereas carboxylation of the MGP protein inhibits calcification of the vascular tissue. A really interesting event that happens there with those two proteins with regard to vitamin K-dependent carboxylation. Now, the role of these two GLA proteins, again, osteocalcin and MGP, in calcium metabolism are very important to remember. Carboxylation of osteocalcin embedded in the bone matrix, termed osteoid tissue, promotes its affinity and binding to hydroxyapatite, a calcium phosphate mineral required for mineralization of bone osteoid matrix, which is composed of collagen and other proteins where mineral salts are deposited into that bone matrix. So vitamin K carboxylation of osteocalcin is critical for all of that that I just described. Ultimately, The calcium deposition into the bone osteoid matrix. Whereas carboxylation of MGP by vitamin K activates MGP's inhibition of serum calcium phosphate deposition, again, the hydroxyapatite mineral deposition into the vascular tissue. And that modification of MGP by vitamin K in the protection of our arteries from the calcification associated with atherosclerosis is a vital understanding with regard to blood flow to the heart and brain, which I've spoken about many times on various episodes here. While this episode's focus is on the bone-brain axis, cardiovascular and cardiometabolic health is a feature in the dynamism inherent in the bone-heart and the bone-brain axis. The gut is yet another link in these associations too. I'll share how the gut is also connected to the bone-brain axis In what is now referred to as the gut bone brain axis, in a very short while here. However, before I do move on, I'll emphasize that vitamin K deficiency results in undercarboxylated osteocalcin and undercarboxylated MGP. So that just points out how important sufficiency of vitamin K in your diet or through supplementation is in the carboxylation of those two proteins, osteocalcin and MGP. And when that isn't sufficiently activated in terms of that carboxylation event, then that is referred to as under carboxylated, and I'm making that point because there is a distinction here between undercarboxylated and just uncarboxylated osteocalcin, and we'll get to that shortly here, so please bear with me. And here is where carboxylation gets to be a very interesting subject matter. Uncarboxylated osteocalcin which is measured as a percentage in the serum or blood, is regarded as a biomarker for vitamin K intake. And the same holds true for undercarboxylated MGP. Now, research in the late 1990s uncovered that the carboxylation of osteocalcin in bone was quickly reversed or decarboxylated, and therefore it played a less significant role in bone mineralization. And that is actually a very complex story, but just remember that, that the decarboxylation of osteocalcin in the bone is a normal process. Subsequently, the normal decarboxylation of osteocalcin is released into your blood circulation as what is typically referred to as uncarboxylated osteocalcin. So there's the distinction I'm making again between uncarboxylated osteocalcin, which is a normal event, versus undercarboxylated osteocalcin which is related to vitamin K deficiency and let me stress again that important distinction undercarboxylated versus uncarboxylated osteocalcin these terms are often used interchangeably in many studies however the undercarboxylation of osteocalcin and matrix gla protein is linked to vitamin K deficiency, as noted earlier, Under carboxylation of both vitamin K-dependent proteins is specific to their inadequate carboxylation due to vitamin K deficiency. And I realize that I am slightly overemphasizing that point here, but I feel that this is a little bit difficult to follow. And so I'm repeating myself here a bit. Now, uncarboxylated osteocalcin, again, is more aligned with the normal decarboxylation of osteocalcin in bone, which occurs in bone remodeling pathways. And why the emphasis on these two terms? Again, serum uncarboxylated osteocalcin functions as a hormone. So that decarboxylation event in bone tissue and then release into the serum is very important because it has a very vital role as a hormone. And thus, it is a critical endocrine factor in numerous physiological pathways that exerts a vital role in insulin sensitivity. And glucose metabolism, adipose or fat tissue, and fat storage, brain development and cognition, exercise capacity, and male fertility. So, uncarboxylated osteocalcin has indeed wide spread effects on many tissues in the body and brain. The role of uncarboxylated osteocalcin and its metabolic effects that I just pointed out and the metabolic impact of uncarboxylated osteocalcin is one of the most promising and emerging fields of study and one that I sense will continue to be asserted in the coming years. In fact, numerous recent studies have shown that uncarboxylated osteocalcin functions as an important regulator of the metabolic pathways that regulate insulin sensitivity and glucose and adipose tissue metabolism, as I pointed out just a moment ago. Thus, when these metabolic pathways between uncarboxylated osteocalcin and other tissues are dysfunctional, then we are more at risk for type 2 diabetes and the insulin resistance associated with it, as well as obesity and cardiovascular disease. And all of that is, again, strongly, strongly associated with the role of uncarboxylated osteocalcin. Now... A prime example of what I've just shared with regard to uncarboxylated osteocalcin and its role in metabolic health is the findings of a 2022 paper, which is titled Target for Early Diagnosis of Cardiovascular and Glycemic Disorders in Patients with Metabolic Syndrome. And that paper concluded that uncarboxylated osteocalcin may well serve as a predictive biomarker for the development of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease in patients with metabolic syndrome and for those of you that are not familiar with the term metabolic syndrome, it is also known as insulin resistance syndrome, which is characterized by a cluster of metabolic abnormalities and risk factors that includes Abdominal obesity, lipid abnormalities such as elevated triglycerides and lower HDL cholesterol, hypertension, elevated fasting blood glucose, and insulin resistance. Any combination of three or more of those conditions warrants the diagnosis of metabolic syndrome. Now, yes, metabolic syndrome alone is a risk factor for the onset of type 2 diabetes. And there is some degree of underlying cardiovascular disease and metabolic syndrome too. But the point is lower levels of uncarboxylated osteocalcin is associated with a greater risk and progression and diagnosis of type 2 diabetes and more advanced cardiovascular disease. Thus. Uncarboxylated osteocalcin is now being viewed as an important constituent in the homeostasis of metabolic health and the risk for type 2 diabetes. In part, the rationale for making a point here about the role of uncarboxylated osteocalcin and bone tissue in metabolic or cardiometabolic health and disease is to once again highlight the myriad of mechanisms and pathways that couples cardiometabolic disease to the risk for late-onset Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And the underlying risk factors that connects all of this together is chronic inflammation and oxidative stress, which are core components in in Inflammaging, and again, that's inflammaging, which is the age-related systemic inflammation and associated diseases that are driven by several core risk factors, including diet and lifestyle patterns and an unhealthy gut microbiome and the early stages of metabolic disease that occurs in many individuals very early in life. Not surprisingly, previous studies have shown that lower serum osteocalcin levels are associated with obesity and type 2 diabetes, which are pro-inflammatory disorders. In addition, lower serum levels of uncarboxylated osteocalcin have similarly been reported in patients with bone-related inflammatory diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis, osteoporosis, and ankylosing spondylitis. Now, rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis is often correlated to chronic gut Health conditions known as dysbiosis or imbalances in the gut microbiome and bacteria, which are potent contributors to chronic inflammation. And that bacteria, because of intestinal permeability that results from chronic inflammation, can translocate across the intestinal barrier and promote the stimulation of these types of autoimmune reactions. Now, on to an overview on osteocalcin, in particular, uncarboxylated osteocalcin in the bone-brain axis. Uncarboxylated osteocalcin easily crosses the blood-brain barrier, and it has been shown to be an essential hormone in fetal brain development, and in the regulation of mood and cognition throughout life. Two key areas of research focus with regard to brain osteocalcin are centered on memory formation and neurotransmitter synthesis. Osteocalcin, as uncarboxylated osteocalcin, binds to neurons Of the brainstem, midbrain, and hippocampus, which supports the synthesis of dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin and blunts GABA, that's GABA, blunts GABA synthesis. And these are all neurotransmitters. In mouse models, such uncarboxylated osteocalcin interactions with functional and regional. Features of the central nervous system has demonstrated to be critical elements in the regulation of anxiety and depression and in spatial memory and learning mechanisms. And for those of you that track the science that links common warning signs that your brain might be at risk for cognitive impairment or dementia as you age, Increased anxiety and depression, or difficulty navigating and finding your way around, referred to as spatial memory, are highly associated with the onset of Alzheimer's disease as you age. Now, as I indicated earlier, onto a more detailed overview on osteocalcin, and in particular, the role of uncarboxylated osteocalcin in the bone-brain axis. Uncarboxylated osteocalcin easily crosses the blood-brain barrier, and it has been shown to be an essential hormone in fetal brain development and in the regulation of mood and cognition throughout life. Two key areas of research focus with regard to brain osteocalcin, are centered on memory formation and neurotransmitter synthesis. And neurotransmitters, of course, are those important mood neurochemicals that are also very important in cognitive function. Now, uncarboxylated osteocalcin binds to neurons of the brainstem, midbrain, and hippocampus, which is a factor in the synthesis of dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, and GABA. GABA is spelled G-A-B-A, and those are all very important neurotransmitters. These transmitters or neurotransmitters and others, such as acetylcholine and glutamate, are essential neurochemicals in many aspects of mood and cognitive health, And their deficiency or dysregulation in aging and in neurodegenerative disorders contributes to the profiles of neurological disorders such as Alzheimer's disease. In mouse models, such uncarboxylated osteocalcin interactions with functional and regional features of the central nervous system has demonstrated to be critical elements in the regulation of anxiety and depression and in spatial memory and learning mechanisms. And for those of you who track the science that links, common warning signs that your brain might be at risk for cognitive impairment or dementia as you age, increased anxiety and depression, or difficulty navigating and finding your way around, which is known as spatial memory they are highly highly associated with the onset of future alzheimer's disease as you age now let's look at the findings of a couple of key studies that highlighted the workings of uncarboxylated osteocalcin with regard to brain and cognitive function first in a collaborative research effort and study published in 20 17. Dr. R. Kandel, a Nobel laureate and senior researcher at Columbia University and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, and Dr. Carzenti, and I'll be mentioning Dr. Carzenti frequently throughout these episodes on the Bone Brain Axis. Well, Dr. Kandel and Dr. Carzenti jointly reported on a key. Hippocampal receptor known as GPR158 that binds with osteocalcin and mediates hippocampal memory formation. In Drs. Candle and Carzenti's research study, it was shown that injection of osteocalcin in older mice was sufficient to improve memory. And decrease anxiety-like behaviors in a related experiment with mice, the hippocampal receptor gpr one five eight was inactivated, which demonstrated that osteocalcin treatments failed to mediate the improvements in performance and memory tests, thus showcasing how important that receptor gpr one five eight was to the function of osteocalcin in the brain. Now, the study also reported another significant finding with regard to the benefit of how osteocalcin mediated a molecular pathway critical for hippocampal-dependent memory by stimulating brain-derived neurotrophic factor transport to the synapses of the hippocampus. And for those of you that are hearing about brain-derived neurotrophic factor, well-known as BDNF for the first time, well, BDNF is one of a family of neurotrophins, and that is neurotrophins that are vital, signaling molecules that regulate the function and structure of the synapses and mediate the synaptic plastic processes that lead to learning and memory formation. Not surprisingly, the research centered on BDNF has shown a profound protective effect in the induction of hippocampal neurogenesis and in mitigating the degenerative disease process associated with Alzheimer's disease and other neurological disorders. However, in commentary with regard to experiments on mice in the study, Dr. Kandel stressed that the 2017 study findings are primarily indicative of age-related memory loss, which may... Or may not be a harbinger of future cognitive impairment and a diagnosis of dementia. Nevertheless, other studies have explored and found evidence that there is a distinct bone brain axis that demonstrates an association of bone loss with the increased risk for late onset Alzheimer's disease and study using. Mice and in studies examining the link between the loss of bone mass density and the risk for Alzheimer's disease in aging individuals. In another 2016 mouse model study, reduced bone mineral density and osteoporosis correlated to an increase risk for Alzheimer's disease, and I'm bringing up this study because of an important correlation with regard to the bone-brain axis and a particular region of the brain associated with that axis. Now, in that 2016 mouse model study, the study used genetically bread mice, which are referred to as HTAU or H tau mice, to express human tau protein associated with the hallmark brain neuronal lesions linked to Alzheimer's disease, and those are neurofibrillary tangles associated with tau protein, and other neurodegenerative diseases. Again, tau. Tangles as it is commonly referred to, the study determined that lower bone mineral density in the H tau mice preceded tau protein abnormalities associated with tau tangle lesions. So note that well that lower bone mineral density was noted to precede the abnormalities associated with tau tangle lesion formations in these mice. The lead author of the 2016 study, Christine Dengler Krisch, remarked, and here is her quote, measurement of bone density, which is routinely performed in the clinic, could serve as a useful biomarker for assessing Alzheimer's disease risk in our aging population. And that statement by Dr. Krish gets to the heart of the matter that I intended to emphasize here. Again, what Dr. Krish emphasized was measurement of bone density, which is routinely performed in the clinic could serve as a useful biomarker for assessing Alzheimer's disease risk in our aging population. Note that, well, that's such a significant statement. Now, another notable finding in the genetically bred mice, the H-tau mice, well, in that study, the very early changes in an area of the brainstem known as the dorsal Rafi nucleus and raphe is spelled R A P H E and the dorsal rafi nucleus is a very dynamic area of the brainstem which utilizes a host of neurotransmitters including serotonin glutamate GABA and dopamine to control various physiological functions including motor and sensory functions And learning, memory, and mood disorders such as depression. And now, refer to the dorsal raphe nucleus as the DRN moving forward. The DRN is indeed a major brain structure associated with serotonin production. And serotonin is also a regulator in bone formation and the growth of the adult skeleton. The study concluded that the reduced bone mineral density occurs earlier than the overt brain degeneration seen in that tau-based mouse model of the Alzheimer's disease study, and that alterations in tau protein occur in the serotonin-producing cells of the brainstem of such mice. The above study findings are a significant discovery in the bone-brain axis hypothesis, and it showcases a bidirectional pathway in that axis, which links the onset of tau tangles in the dorsal raphe nucleus, the DRN, and serotonin, and how all of that is related to bone health and bone mineral density. To repeat, reduced bone mineral density occurs early in the neural pathology associated with tau tangles, and that tau tangle pathology occurs in the serotonin-producing cells of the brainstem, the DRN, which is a factor in reduced bone mineral density and osteoporosis. And there are many such compelling studies using mice that demonstrate reductions in bone mass density, bone loss, and uncarboxylated osteocalcin as significant biomarkers in the risk for Alzheimer's disease. So to summarize what we've covered so far, the neuropathology associated with late-onset Alzheimer's disease in key areas of the brain is strongly associated with bone loss and bone mass density. And the mechanisms and molecular pathways associated with osteocalcin and other bone health and disease biomarkers are highly correlative to the risk for late-onset Alzheimer's disease. Now, what about studies on humans, both men and women? Well, let's look at a few, four of them, which I'm going to cover here, and I'll start with what I'll term study number one. In 2016, a study analysis of older and younger women, and the mean age of the older women population was 74.4, whereas the age of the younger women was approximately 23.4. And it was determined that plasma osteocalcin levels were positively associated with measures of executive functioning and global cognition and cognitive performance in older, non-demented women. Now, the younger women group was included as a comparative cognitive function cohort to the older women in the study. As expected, the younger women performed better on cognitive performance tests, but there were no significant differences in what is termed episodic memory, executive function, and global cognition between the two groups. And to give you a brief explanation of episodic memory, if you have not heard that term before, it is a reference to the long-term Repository and detailed recollection of autobiographical events. Now, in that study, which included, in that study number one again here, which included extensive analysis of bone remodeling biomarkers, including osteocalcin and cognitive performance assessments, such as the Mini Mental State Exam and another well known one, which is the Cambridge. Neuropsychological Test Automated Battery, and the acronym for that is CANTAB, C A N T A B. While the study authors noted that while bone remodeling factors might precede changes in bone mass density with relation to cognition, the findings were correlative but not definitive with regard to a cause and effect. Relationship. Nevertheless, the overall conclusion between osteocalcin and cognition in older women was that they found a, and I'll quote, a positive association between osteocalcin levels in the plasma and working memory capacity, executive functioning, and global cognition scores. No such findings in the study with regard to men and the linkage between bone mineral density, osteocalcin, and cognition scores. And yes, I did fail to mention a few moments ago that young and older men were also included in the study analysis. Now, I'll emphasize that numerous studies demonstrate an association between lower bone mineral density uncarboxylated osteocalcin in the risk for cognitive decline, and dementia and Alzheimer's disease in both sexes. But admittedly, there are a few studies that assert otherwise. It takes decades of research and studies to establish a norm with regard to the clinical application of a biomarker such as osteocalcin in the risk reduction or treatment of a complex disorder such as Alzheimer's disease. There will almost always be some opposing views and findings with regard to what is deemed to be a newer and promising biomarker for a clinical application. A lower bone mineral density and uncarboxylated osteocalcin are significant risk factors for cognitive impairment in both sexes. And I'll speak to one important differentiating factor between the sexes, estrogen, and testosterone a little later in this overview. Now, I want to point out that the levels of serum vitamin D and calcium were also included in the study analysis and were not significantly associated with any of the measures of cognitive functioning. And I'll go off on a little bit of a tangent here because I must speak to that. Vitamin D is a very important nutrient in heart, brain, and bone health. And of course, in the latter, almost everybody knows that. So make sure to check your blood levels and adjust supplementation as needed in order to optimize those blood levels. And if you're not working with a practitioner that is looking at more functional and optimal ranges of vitamin D and other biomarkers. And please, seek one out. It's important. And calcium, for the obvious reasons, is also a nutrient to make sure you get enough of. And in many cases, a healthy diet with plenty of leafy greens, nuts and seeds, and organic dairy such as yogurt or kefir is ideal. And let's not forget that digestion is an important component of nutrient metabolism and absorption, especially in the case of minerals, B12, and protein. And I do have an episode number nine here at the Alzheimer's Solution Revolution channel with regard to the importance of gut health and gut digestion in the gut-brain axis and the risk for dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And within that episode number nine, again, I pointed out the role of proton pump inhibitors that inhibit stomach acid in several key studies, including a very recent one demonstrated that the chronic use of proton pump inhibitors increases the risk for dementia and Alzheimer's in later years. Stomach acid is crucial for breaking down minerals and B12 from food, and amino acids from protein, all of which are so important for brain health. So don't inhibit your stomach acid. Now, before I proceed with other studies and overviews on osteocalcin and bone mineral density in the bone-brain axis, I'll clarify a few of the terms. I've made reference to that may not be clear, such as bone remodeling and bone mineral and bone mass density. And I'll also speak to the reference to plasma osteocalcin levels used in study number one and why they did not refer more specifically to a type of osteocalcin such as uncarboxylated osteocalcin. First, there are two pathways in normal bone health that is regulated by bone cells, two key bone cells, and those are osteoblasts and osteoclasts. In bone remodeling, bone-forming cells, the osteoblasts, secrete a bone matrix material termed osteoid. And they coordinate the mineralization of that bone matrix, all of which adds up to the formation of new bone tissue. Osteoclasts, on the other hand, break down and degrade or resorb old and damaged bone. And it is this buildup and breakdown of bone tissue that repairs and keeps your bones strong so that they do not become old and brittle. So, it is a crucial yin and yang balance of building up and breaking down bone. And I'm going to speak to you more of that yin and yang phenomenon in bone health a little later. So, please stay tuned. This bone remodeling balancing act between osteoblasts and osteoclasts is further highlighted by the fact that bone. Resorption is an essential factor in osteocalcin activation. In bone resorption, osteoclasts acidify the bone matrix, which is termed the extracellular bone matrix, which is both necessary to activate osteocalcin via a decarboxylation pathway. And allow the release of activated osteocalcin in its uncarboxylated form into blood circulation. Another crucial agent in the osteoclast-stimulated decarboxylation and metabolic activation of osteocalcin is the role of insulin on osteoblasts insulin signaling via insulin receptors on osteoblasts promotes bone formation and osteocalcin production and its subsequent decarboxylation through osteoclast-mediated bone resorption. Uncarboxylated osteocalcin, in turn, regulates insulin secretion in pancreatic islet cells, which underlies the regulation of glucose homeostasis by bone. Thus, this bone-insulin dynamic is termed the bone-pancreas-endocrine loop. So you can imagine what happens when unhealthy diet and lifestyle patterns eventually expresses as type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance in a person. Osteoblast and bone insulin resistance is a component in a dysfunctional bone-pancreas-endocrine loop, which can be reversed through targeted diet and lifestyle therapies, as well as weight loss and the shedding of belly fat. And that's a very important point because it highlights that you can actually promote and restore healthy, uncarboxylated osteocalcin levels by losing excess belly fat. Next, I want to emphasize that in the study number one I just covered here, that levels of plasma osteocalcin were not differentiated from uncarboxylated osteocalcin. I point that out as many studies do not make the distinction in their analysis and reviews. And you may run into that type of reference in your readings. Many studies that have investigated the connection between osteocalcin and bone mineral density and the risk for cognitive decline and dementia simply Do not make the distinction between osteocalcin and uncarboxylated osteocalcin in their research. They do not measure uncarboxylated osteocalcin and a very important ratio that I'm going to speak about. Furthermore, like most signaling molecules, uncarboxylated osteocalcin regulates pancreatic insulin secretion by binding to a key receptor. Known as the GPRC6A receptor. And remember, earlier in this review, I pointed out the key research by Dr. Carzenti and Dr. Kendall that identified the receptor GPR158 for uncarboxylated osteocalcin in the central nervous system. The discovery of both osteocalcin receptors were a significant add to the research with regard to the role of osteocalcin and osteocalcin signaling in the bone-pancreas loop, as well as muscle function, adipose tissue metabolism, and male fertility. Nevertheless, many studies, such as study number one that I reviewed here, which referred to plasma osteocalcin, are more likely measuring total plasma osteocalcin. And that's an important point. And here is where we're going to get into why that is in terms of the certain measurements of osteocalcin, total osteocalcin, and uncarboxylated osteocalcin. Now, please bear with me as I detail the particulars of osteocalcin assessments as they are convoluted. However, they can provide important insights into your risk for bone, brain, and metabolic health disorders that you can leverage for optimal health with your practitioner. To begin with, total osteocalcin assessments include both uncarboxylated and under carboxylated osteocalcin and carboxylated osteocalcin. And such assessments do not make a point to separate them out, which can be a very important consideration. Now, if you remember, I briefly described the carboxylation of osteocalcin pathway that requires vitamin K. And that process occurs in the bone matrix, which then morphs into a decarboxylation pathway and produces uncarboxylated or undercarboxylated osteocalcin. While uncarboxylated and undercarboxylated osteocalcin are secreted into circulation, some Carboxylated osteocalcin that primarily stays within the bone matrix also makes its way into circulation, too. And here is why more specific osteocalcin assays matter. As I detailed here earlier, vitamin K deficiency or insufficiency is a common finding in older adults and leads to increased levels of under. Carboxylated osteocalcin, which may be reflected in total osteocalcin assays that are elevated. Thus, the ratio of undercarboxylated osteocalcin to total osteocalcin can be a very important factor as a high undercarboxylated osteocalcin to total osteocalcin ratio. Indicates either a vitamin K deficiency or increased bone resorption. And I'll explain a little bit more of the latter in just a moment. We did review that earlier, but I will remind you of it. For example, in a clinical setting, total osteocalcin assessments are used to monitor the effectiveness of anti resorptive therapy in patients and those therapies include drugs such as bisphosphonates or hormone replacement therapy thus the effectiveness of antiresorptive therapy is reflected in lower total osteocalcin levels so what does that leave us in regard to assays that include total osteocalcin versus those that include Under carboxylated osteocalcin to total osteocalcin ratio, I referred to here a moment ago. Again, the issue here that prompted this osteocalcin assessment overview is that many studies only utilize total osteocalcin levels in reference to their findings. However, more recent advances. In assay accuracy has seemingly yielded reliable advances in the ratio of undercarboxylated and uncarboxylated osteocalcin to total osteocalcin assays, which are potentially the most accurate evaluation of those assays. Now, if you recall, a little earlier in this review, I described an essential difference. Between undercarboxylated osteocalcin associated with vitamin K deficiency versus uncarboxylated osteocalcin that is associated with insulin resistance and cardiometabolic disease. And of course, the partially carboxylated or undercarboxylation of osteocalcin and matrix. GLA protein due to vitamin K deficiency is a significant risk for reduced bone mineral density and arterial calcification. Therefore, in assays of total osteocalcin, how would one decipher the percentage of undercarboxylated or uncarboxylated osteocalcin to total osteocalcin? In concluding that it was a driving factor in reduced bone mineral density and arterial calcification, or a factor associated with insulin resistance and cardiometabolic disease? The answer, of course, is that a ratio assessment will support and facilitate a more accurate clinical judgment and assessment. For example, a 2020 study that conducted assays for total osteocalcin and undercarboxylated osteocalcin, a undercarboxylated osteocalcin to total osteocalcin ratio in older women was a factor, and I'll quote, in reduced physical function, including its long-term decline and increase risk of falls-related hospitalizations, as before, undercarboxylated osteocalcin is associated with vitamin K deficiency. And an important point made by the study's authors at 2020 study was that the undercarboxylated osteocalcin to total osteocalcin ratio is potentially a more sensitive measure than under carboxylated osteocalcin alone as an indicator of physical function and possibly falls-related clinical outcomes. And that it appears that the ratio is more strongly related to physical function and falls risk and thus a better measure of the aging effect of osteocalcin than the total or individual forms separately. So that ratio can provide invaluable insights just on the aging process alone and frailty and the risk for falls in older individuals. I'll add that the studies on the role of vitamin K And healthy aging and muscle strength have demonstrated that higher levels of vitamin K1-rich foods, such as leafy greens, are associated with greater muscle strength, improved muscle function, and lower injurious falls risk. Now, Testing for blood levels of vitamin K is widely available. In the hands of an astute clinician, the vitamin K test can certainly support an evaluation for undercarboxylated osteocalcin. It is, in my opinion, a must test for healthy aging and living younger longer for both women and men. Additionally. Other studies on vitamin K in the form of K1 and K2 have indicated an anti-inflammatory benefit and increased insulin sensitivity in humans. So much for the importance of the undercarboxylated osteocalcin to total osteocalcin ratio and vitamin K testing. And now we're going to move on to a similar ratio that looks at specifically uncarboxylated osteocalcin. In another recent study, also published in 2020, the researchers showcased a well-validated assay for the ratio of uncarboxylated osteocalcin to total osteocalcin. And from that study, I'll quote In conclusion, we have developed and validated a robust assay of monoclonal antibodies against human uncarboxylated osteocalcin and use them to establish immunoassay measuring specifically this hormone to quantify uncarboxylated osteocalcin in human serum or plasma. And of course, when they're talking about that hormone, it refers to uncarboxylated osteocalcin, which functions as a hormone. And furthermore, they said uncarboxylated osteocalcin measured with this assay is associated with higher insulin sensitivity, lower glucose, and better beta cell. Function in humans, supporting the role of uncarboxylated osteocalcin as a hormone influencing glucose metabolism and the risk of type 2 diabetes in humans. No doubt, these uncarboxylated osteocalcin and undercarboxylated osteocalcin to total osteocalcin. Ratio assessments are a significant component to the design and future of wellness and longevity strategies. In fact, depending on where you live and your resources, such assessments are available now. Lastly, a brief explanation on the terms that I have repeated here in this episode several times namely, bone mineral and bone mass density. First, bone mineral density is more specific to the results of assessments that include the Dual Energy X-ray Absorptiometry Scan Evaluation, well known and referred to commonly as the DEXA scan. And that's spelled D-E-X-A or D-X-A. And that test is considered the gold standard of bone mineral density testing and a measurement that, to some extent, is an indicator of bone strength. On the other hand, bone mass density is a more generalized term with regard to the total mass of bone mineral density or thickness present in bones. I hope that was helpful, and that concludes part one of this vital bone-heart-brain access episode. This episode was so dense with information that I decided to include a second episode to complete this overview. Episode number two the Bone Heart Brain Access will be available soon, so please look for it as it will include additional insights into this fascinating and important research and science and how it can be leveraged in your potential risk for metabolic and cognitive health as you age. Thank you so very much if you made it to the end here. God bless and goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Alzheimer's Solutions Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a comment and subscribe wherever you listen in to your favorite podcasts. Share with friends and family on your favorite social media channel, such as Twitter or Facebook.